Guys, if you will open your word this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2, we are continuing our school zone pilgrimage through three verses, and then next week we will move on to some new verses, but these have been rich, and today is rich as well to look again. The message today I titled it, Coming to Him and Proclaiming Him. And it explores some dynamics of of what it is to to seek to live a meaningful and fulfilling life. And I know that's a reality that all of us truly do face on a daily basis. Seeking to get the most out of life. Seeking to live the best life we possibly can. That's what makes us escape feelings of regret. We've missed something. We didn't live our life to the fullest. Um, well, one of the things that we want to do is, is to help us to think, and sometimes good quotes from skillful wordsmiths help us to do that. So today I have chosen uh, Billy Crystal from City Slickers. I think we have a picture of him. There we go. Thank you. To help us think carefully about our lives. This is, this is what his character said in the movie City Slickers. He said, value, and you've got you to hear this through the voice of Billy Crystal, which I can't quite do a Billy Crystal impression. Value this time in your life, kids. This is the time in your life when you have choices. It goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think that you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. In your 30s, you make a little money, raise a family, and wonder, what happened to my 20s? In your 40s, you grow a pot belly and another chin. The music starts to get too loud, and one of your old girlfriends becomes a grandmother. In your 50s, you have a minor surgery. You call it a procedure. In your 60s, you have a major surgery, and the music is still loud, but that doesn't matter because you can no longer hear it. In your 70s, you and your wife move to Florida, and you start having dinner at 2 in the afternoon, lunch at 10 in the morning, and breakfast the night before. You spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for ultimate low-fat yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? In your 80s, you have a major stroke and end up babbling to a Jamaican nurse whom your wife can't stand, but you end up calling mama. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully hopefully that's not exactly accurate. But You know, life, life flies by and all of us are trying to sort of grab a hold of living a life that means something and it's fulfilling. Right, so here's, here's a question for you. It's a question I asked my kids the other night. We've, we've been kind of chewing on these verses together. And these verses are going to help us. But I was asking them, okay, what, what do you want to do for the rest of your life? Right, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right, some of us are still asking that question. Even though we've grown up, we're still kind of having to wrestle through that question of what do you want to be when you grow up. And here's the follow-up question. Why? Why do you want to be that when you grow up? And if you're just curious, here's, here's the top ten list of things kids want to be when they grow up. Right? Number one, an athlete. How surprising. Number two, a ballerina. Number three, a doctor. Number four, a pop star. Number five, an inventor. Number six, an astronaut. Number seven, a teacher. Number eight, a pastor. How nice to be included somewhere. Number nine, a secret agent. <laughs> number 10, an actor. And then more classics, number 11 and 12 are policemen and firefighter. Number 17 is a race car driver, and actually one of my kids wanted to be a race car driver. He was practicing this morning on the floor. Uh, during worship, he was driving his car. Didn't surprise me at all that Drew said... Race car driver. <laughs> uh, he loves cars. Number 21 was a lawyer. You know, so those of you who are lawyers, you're, you're on the lease somewhere there. But the question is, why do you want to do what you say you want to do? And I think the not spoken but obvious answer is we want to choose something that we think is going to be fulfilling. Something that when we go to do it, it makes use of our lives, our talents, our outlook, what we prize and treasure in a way that's going to make us feel like when we get towards the end of this thing, or even as we're going through the daily grind of it, we feel fulfilled. We feel like we're living a satisfied, 
rewarding life. But how do you know whether what you're aiming at is going to fulfill you? I mean, I mean what's on a kid's list here, it's kind of on a lot of our lists. But how do you know any of that stuff would really manage to pull it off? I mean, athletes look like, I mean, we want to watch the NBA playoffs, and it looks like, boy, that would just be the most exciting life to live. But, but is it really? See, there's some people who have traveled down this road only to discover that I got to do the things that everybody would like to do, but it didn't fulfill me, right? Surprise, surprise. Here's some folks that some of us are familiar with. Shia LaBeouf, very successful. If you guys have been to Alpha, you'll remember seeing some of these thoughts. Sometimes I feel I'm living a meaningless life, and I get frightened. I know I'm one of the luckiest dudes in America right now. I have a great house. My parents don't have to work. I've got money. I'm famous. But it could all change. It could go away. You never know. I don't handle fame well. Most actors on most days don't think they're worthy. I have no idea where this insecurity comes from, but it's a God-sized hole. If I knew, I'd fill it, and I'd be on my way. So, you know, even as you watch actors do their thing on screen, it looks like this ultimate exciting life, but does it really fulfill the human soul the way in which, you know, maybe it looks like it might? Well, how about athletics? Maybe that would do it. As Tom Brady said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't. This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And, you know, I've, I've seen that same sort of thought from a number of athletes who have achieved something in their career. I mean, even to go pro. You know, is, is like a kid's dream. I could become an athlete who could do that for a living. Then to achieve the success that some of these guys have achieved, but to still feel like I don't feel fulfilled. Something's still missing. And here's a, a cartoon by Ralph Barton. Ralph Barton precedes us by many years, so most of us don't know what he, who he was. He was a cartoonist in an age when cartoon drawers were famous, right? They're not really famous anymore, but he was famous. He was world-renowned famous uh, back in the early 1900s. When he was, you know, remember, there's no, there's no web, there's no TV, uh, none of those things exist, so print media is everything, right? So this guy was known, and he got to experience some things. He wrote these thoughts on his suicide note. I've had few difficulties, many friends, great successes. I've gone from wife to wife and from house to house, visited great countries of the world, but I'm fed up with inventing devices to fill up 24 hours a day. Right, that's the testimony of somebody who must have thought, with all the popularity and activity, must have thought, this will certainly fulfill me. But yet it didn't. So how do we, how do we manage this thing inside of us that, that's looking for fulfillment? How do you find fulfillment in your life? Uh, well, I think to get fulfillment, there must be something that you are fulfilling, right? I'm, I'm doing something that fulfills some kind of purpose in my life. And, you know, there, there's, there's sort of a popular dynamic to throw out in front of people, I think, because it addresses this, this issue. It's the idea that, that you have a destiny. Now, you ever heard that word? That, that's a popular word, you know. You have a destiny to fulfill. And that comes to you and it screams into this category. Your life was meant to fulfill something, and you have a destiny to live. Well, what is that destiny? What is that purpose that you were meant to fulfill in your life? Well, our verse today takes us into that realm. Remember last week with our Ford Fiesta commercial? It's a pretty big thing. And so it's going to address some pretty big issues in our lives so let's look this week. Last week we looked at the dimension of how this verse speaks to the, the human need of belonging. We want to belong. We want to be a part of a people. We want to be part of a family. We want to have some kind of connection point to people that we know matters in our lives. We don't want to feel isolated. We don't want to feel like we're just on our own. You know, no matter how much success you might achieve in your life, if you were isolated, you know, I don't think anybody's open to the proposition of, hey, Here's $10 million, 
and the keys to a brand new house on an island where you will never see another person again for the rest of your life. You might, part of you might flirt with that for a second, but part of you would say, I'm not willing to do that. Because the belonging dynamic matters too much to you. Well, today, this verse takes us from this sense of belonging that God has created for his family, for his people, into the purpose statement of our lives. So let's go back and read again. Let's start context back in verse 4 before we get to verse 9 and 10 again. Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now back to what it's saying about us, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Lord, thank you again for your word that shines like a light in the midst of the darkness of this world. But Lord, not just the darkness of an evil world, but Lord, the darkness of our thinking, the darkness of our minds that get confused and disoriented. And your light comes and brings clarity. Lord, I pray for the gift of clarity this morning. We would have your word to guide us in how we see our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take you to a critical, critical statement, and it's just a little phrase that can get easily passed by. On your way to trying to live a fulfilling life, we're introduced to this thought in verse 4. As you come to him. Can I just tell you, if there's a key to understanding, it's that little phrase right there. There's a key to understanding the Bible. It's that little phrase. If there's a key to understanding the gospel, it's that little phrase. If there's a key to understanding your life, it's that little phrase. Coming to him. That's what everything in this book is about. We get a brief introduction of God's original creation. Brief. You don't get three chapters into the Bible before the need to come to him is the rest of the book. This book is about coming to him. The gospel is about getting us to him. Now, I want to highlight some things that are really, they're the almost secondary elements to coming to him. I don't want to overstate this, but I want to make sure we see something here. You know, when we come to the gospel, we hear about the penalty of our sins being removed. That's what the gospel tells us. We come to him and the penalty for our wrongdoing in this life is removed. That's important, but that's not ultimate in the Bible. When we come to the gospel, we hear about forgiveness of sins and guilt being removed. Some of us know what it is to live under the weight of past failures to where we carry around in our lives daily guilt. And then you hear the gospel that it wipes out all of your sins and cleanses you from all sin and relieves you from condemnation and addresses that guilt. But that's not ultimately where the gospel's headed. It is contained in the gospel. The gospel introduces us to healing in our brokenness and inner peace. And we start traveling into inner peace, we start start dealing with this satisfaction and fulfillment dynamic that all of us want. We want to be at peace in ourselves. Okay, the gospel offers us peace, but that is not ultimate either. The gospel offers us the reality of becoming new creatures in Christ. The Holy Spirit comes and, and you get to be a new person. 
Now, if you're in touch with who you are apart from God, that is really, really good news, isn't it? I, I, you know, I, I don't like who I am in so many ways apart from God doing anything with my life. And to hear that I could be somebody else, I could actually take on a new life, I could live my life for the rest of my days as a new person, that's really good news. But it's not the ultimate news of the gospel. Heaven is a really awesome place. We don't think about it enough, quite honestly. When you get saved, you get to go to heaven. And those thoughts go together. But heaven is not the ultimate of the gospel. See, ultimately, the gospel is about being restored to him. It is personal. It is not just concepts. It is being restored to him, right? Peter's going to say it this way in just a couple of chapters. He says, for Christ, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's the gospel. That he might bring us to God, right? The gospel is a means unto something. It's not the end of the road. It's a means unto him. John Piper said this this way. He says, we're forgiven and we're justified to bring us to God. God is our treasure. God is at the end. My forgiveness is not the end. My justification is not the end. My going to heaven and not having a sick body is not the end. All of that is means. It means to what? Seeing him. Knowing him. Him, loving Him, being satisfied in Him and Him being more glorified in me because I'm being eternally satisfied in Him. All right, I I may sound like I'm splitting hairs here when I go through that list. You know, why, why highlight this? Why make a big deal out of that nuance of what we're returning to? Um... Well, because you could easily end up settling for the means and missing the ultimate destination of the gospel. You could settle for knowing a bunch of stuff. And all that stuff is the means to knowing him. And you could, you could easily fall short. See, your, your soul wants something. It wants something out of this life. I remember that uh, scene in the Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is, is giving the ring to Frodo and telling him to keep it safe. And, and, he, and he says this about the ring. He says, always remember, Frodo, the ring is trying to get back to its master. It wants to be found. It's like there's this desire. Now, that, that doesn't work real well theologically for total depravity, but on the other side of regeneration, it, it seems to work. There is a desire in your soul to return to God. Right? When Jesus gave his great invitation to people, and he said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. You find the effect on our souls by coming to him. Psalm 63 says, My soul thirsts for you, O God. Right? The great prayer of St. Augustine is that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. There is a relational component to finding God. As you come to him. Now, listen. That word destiny, you know, your life has a destiny. That word destiny today is used like there's this mysterious personal dimension to your life that ultimately you are about something. You just need to discover what it is. And, you know, the person who's 
Singing on American Idol is going to talk about their destiny. I was destined to do this. You know, from the moment I came out, I sang on pitch. You know, from, the, from childbirth on, I, I cried a song to my parents. And I was destined to do this. But you notice, no mention of God. So in other words, your personal destiny, you were created by a personal being, but your personal destiny, it, it, it's not dependent upon God. It's not first about finding your way to him. Now, okay, that, okay, that's the problem of the guy who doesn't know God. But, you know, what about the person who's come to know Christ? Well, somewhere along the way, we can misplace the value of our life being about him. And all of a sudden, we've got him, but we've got him on a shelf over here, and we're still trying to find our destiny. Now, I believe that there's a unique footprint for everybody. I believe God does unique things in our lives. But what you cannot do, what we must not do, is detach this sense of personal destiny from ultimate destiny. Ultimately, our lives were created by the Creator. And sin made us go our own way and separate ourselves from the Creator. And the one thing that's most clear is being restored to Him. No matter what you do in your life, no matter what you become, no matter what label you have, no matter what you've dreamed of being your whole life, does it find its orientation in returning to Him? and glorifying him and knowing him. See, let me say it this way. Ultimately, your life doesn't want all, what all those jobs offer. You know, there's all these jobs that are out there. Well, why, did, why does that seem attractive? What seems fulfilling? What would be fulfilling about it? Well, to be an athlete, I mean, you're traveling to different cities. There's the competition. There's the thrill. There's the trophy at the end. Uh, there's getting paid. You make a living. You make a lot of money to play. I mean, what's there not to love about that? That just sounds fulfilling and adventurous. You, know, you want to be a fireman because it's adventurous and you want to have the thrill. You want stuff in your life that's thrilling. Can I, can I say this? You really don't want that. And if you aim at getting it, we'll end up sounding like these folks here. Your soul doesn't thirst for adventure. The weariness and heaviness of running through life chasing thrills didn't produce rest in your soul. And it won't. My soul thirsts for him. My life longs to return to him and to be found in him and to be completed by him and to enjoy him. This is not a subtle difference. This can be a huge difference. This can be the difference between being in church week in and week out and seeking that something else besides him is what I'm leaning on to fulfill me. I could be here and sing great songs and read from the Bible and talk about belonging to God and walk out of here and hope that my job is going to make me feel a certain way about my life or my spouse, or my children, or my money. It's going to complete me. It's going to make me feel fulfilled. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got God. Oh, yeah, praise God. That's great. But when I go functionally to look to what's the adventure that I'm living my life for, I walk right past him, don't I? It's a hard thing to find adventure when you already hold the one who is adventure, and you put him over here and you start looking. (laughs) Well, you will never find it then. Uh, Trust me, I'm a specialist at looking for lost things. I specialize in that because in my house, things get lost. There's nothing more embarrassing when I am absolutely confident that someone has lost this and it's in my pocket. It's very embarrassing in that moment to realize as you're railing on people about where your keys are and you come to realize I have my keys. Now, do you realize I will never find my keys if I have my keys and I'm looking for them? That's kind of like an infinite loop. You know, we just continue to look and look. If you possess what you're looking for and you're still looking, you will never find. Right? This sounds like a fortune cookie, I know. But, you know, to do with it as best you can. 
But the great tragedy is we come to Christ, which is what our soul was longing for, and we have him, and we keep looking. And whatever it is that you're looking for, and whatever you're looking to, you are guaranteed you will be unfulfilled. That might entertain you for a little while. It might distract you a little bit. It might dull the fact of how you feel for a moment. But it can never fulfill you because your soul never was looking for that. Your soul was looking to return to him as you come to him. Now, in this verse, this is what's at the center of it all. Look at what's listed here, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are all these things. Right now, you you can fill in the blanks for yourself. You are, now this is God's sovereign purpose for his people. And there might be some dimension in which our individual dynamics come into play here. I can't guarantee you that. But you are some things. And by God's plan, you are some things in your life. You are this, and you are that, and you are this, and God has made you this, and he's made you that. Why? That you might proclaim the excellencies of him. That's why. The ultimate destiny of your life was that you would return to him and proclaim him. You would know him in his glory, and you would proclaim him in his glory. Now, that's the ultimate destiny of our lives. I think I put this in your outline. You are what you are in order to experience and reveal the character, nature, and glory of him. That's why you are what you are. Christopher Morgan says, It could be argued that the entire biblical plot line of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation is the story of God's glory. At the ground of all this is the fact that the intrinsically glorious God extrinsically displays his glory. It's a fancy way of saying the invisible God becomes visible. That's your destiny. John Calvin said it this way, the world was no doubt made that it might be a theater of the divine glory. A theater to put on display, a theater through which God makes himself known, a theater for the purpose of proclamation. When we stop and we say that heavens are telling of the glory of God, right? We look at creation and it speaks of something about God. But you and I, though we be the crown jewel of creation, we are still part of creation. So we exist for the same reasons, to tell of the glory of God. Question, are we aware of how easy it is to detach who we are from this great purpose? We just just begin to be about other things. And, And a lot of times it's other things that are sort of associated with God, but it's not about his glory. Almost like we're after the side effect dynamics, right? I, I didn't just think of the sunbathing thing because I stared at the sun all day yesterday, but, um, but it is an interesting illustration. When you sunbathe, right, and you go to hang out and get some tan going on, what is that about, ultimately? Is it about the sun? I mean, do you, do you get your blanket out and you, you go and you've... you've come to the beach and you have an Encyclopedia Britannica volume on the sun with you and you've been meditating on it all night long and considering how big the sun really is and how much energy it projects and how much heat is on the surface and how many millions of miles away it is and and you draw near to the sun on the sandy beaches with a heart that longs to be affectionate toward the sun and you contemplate the sun and the goodness of the sun and the warmth it's giving to you and, and devotion and love springs forth in your heart toward the sun. Is, is any of that happening for anyone here? So why are we there? Because we want the effect the sun has on us. What we're paying attention to is what color I will be when the sun is done with me. <laughs> I wonder if, if that doesn't sometimes describe Christianity. 
We come to God longing for the effect of God on our life. We want to be forgiven. Are you going to be a Christian and say this? All right. Before I get into good, deep theological categories, we just want to be successful. We, we want to be fulfilled. We want to have an adventure. We want the guilt to get off of our back. We want to have a sense of release that all of my failures, it's okay for me to go on. I just, I just want to feel better about my life, for goodness sake. Right? You understand what some of that is? is it's not about God for the sake of who God is. It's about the effect that God can have on me. I want to be a new person. I'm so sick of who I am and the mess I'm making out of my life. And so someone comes and preaches the gospel to us, and we come because we want that to fix us. We, we want to be a different color. I, yeah, I, draw near to God? Okay, I will draw near to God, and, and this is what I'm looking at. What color am I now? Am I dark enough now? Am I bronzy now? How am I doing? I don't, I don't get bronzy, you can tell. I just kind of get beat red. But I'm not sure that's worse than the color I am if I take my shirt off on the beach because I, I look like a lighthouse in, in, up in that moment because I could just kind of turn and keep ships offshore. <laughs> so sometimes just beet red is better than that natural color that I bring to the... You can't tell where the sand stops and I begin sometimes. <laughs> but... Are we coming to him? Now listen, I'm not saying this is completely wrong. Right? Should we celebrate the forgiveness of God? Yes. Should we be aware that we have been cleansed of our sins? Yes. Should we appreciate the fact that there's this new powerhouse of life living inside of us that wasn't there before. Yes. But do you understand the subtlety that along the way, I can be more enamored with that than I am with him? And that translates way too easily into, so, so why did you become an athlete or an actor or a mom or a wife, or a teacher. So what was that about? Well, because I saw in those dynamics things that I thought would be fulfilling to me. See, just, I'm just, just the way I'm wired. You know, I like to take things apart and put them back together. So I went into construction. You know, I like to analyze this. I like to argue, so I'm a lawyer. You know, whatever it is that, that makes you who you are. Do you fill that into the category of you are who you are in order to proclaim the glories of God? Or is it just God jumping on board with personal destinies that, that we want him now to help fulfill our personal destiny? Listen, there is no personal destiny apart from ultimate destiny. And what's ultimate for us is him. This first only makes sense if you start with, as you come to him, he is ultimate to us. And when we come to him... Uh, there's something to receive from him. Right? We come to him, we receive glory so that we might proclaim glory. I'm going to look at a couple of passages here. 2 Corinthians, turn there with me. 2 Corinthians chapter Second Corinthians 3, verse 7, begins a whole section here of the glory that is in the new covenant life that God has given us. And it compares it with the old covenant that Moses communicated to the people of Israel. Verse 7 says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face, because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Do right, you remember this event? Moses goes up on the mountain. He has an encounter. He sees God's glory. And when he comes back down from the mountain, now he is a, he is a bearer of the glory of God. And it's almost like, Moses, can you turn it down, man? You're freaking us out. 
the impression of the glory of God on this man was so great, they actually had to put a veil on to keep from looking at it. So the argument here from Paul is, if that's what happens when somebody merely comes near the glory of God, what about when they become indwelt by the glory of God? He brings this great comparison. Skip over to verse 18. It says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Right Now here is ultimate destiny that the glory of God would be seen in the earth. That's ultimate destiny. That's why creation exists. If you miss that point, you miss everything the Bible's about. The ultimate purpose for anything that was created was in order to display the glory of God. So we became God's image bearers and sin damaged that image and God restoring that image. But we behold his glory and then we are transformed into a like image of his glory. All right, so how important is it then for a Christian that we actually see the glory of God? If you want to do a little troubleshooting on our lives, sometimes when you find that my life is not changing, my life is not being transformed, I'm not growing in the image of Christ, why? Well, more than likely, it's because you've stopped seeing the glory of God. Seeing is transforming. To stop seeing is to stop being transformed. So I'm going to look and see, what, what am I looking at in God? What am I seeing of God that should be affecting a transformation in my life? But perhaps it's not. Look in chapter 4 now, verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, can you please just put a footnote right there for yourself to go back and read the next verses in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12? Because the same thought that Paul is picking up here is what Peter is declaring, that after he explains to us that we are proclaimers of the glory of God, he's going to shift into our witness among the Gentiles and what they see of us. That's exactly what Paul does as well. Look in verse 3 now. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Right? Can you tap into the... To the practice of the enemy here. If there's one thing the enemy wants to do in people's lives, one thing, it's to keep you from seeing. To keep you from seeing the glory of God. Because to see him is to love him and to desire to know him more and to be transformed and changed by what we see. So the one thing the enemy must do to paralyze your life is to simply keep you from seeing. In verse 5, for what we proclaim, right? Remember 1 Peter chapter 2? You are these things so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right? This, this is ultimate destiny. Whatever it is that you and I are about trying to be in life, this speaks to our lives. The light of the glory of God has shone into our hearts so that we might proclaim from our lives the glory of God. See, the ultimate purpose why anything exists in your life is so that God might proclaim his glory to us so that we might proclaim his glory into his creation. And that purpose 
transcends any thought you and I have ever had about what our lives would be or what it would not be. It guides us into how we do anything that we're doing, no matter what it is that we have an ambition and a desire to do. God's ultimate purpose was to proclaim his glory, the light of the gospel shining in us, and then to radiate that proclamation through us. That is ultimate. Now, question, two questions. One, do you ever get the impression that you and God are up to two different things sometimes? I know it might be a rare thought every once in a while, but you ever get that impression that you're up to one thing and God's up to something else and you just kind of got this parallel universe thing happening? Question, have you considered that the path of your life is divinely designed to enable you to see glory so you could proclaim glory? Have you considered that? Let me say that again. Have you considered that the path of your life is divinely designed to enable you to see glory so you could proclaim glory? Christopher Morgan again says, the Bible repeatedly affirms that God's activities of creation Providence, which has to do with the daily managing of the affairs of our lives. Salvation and judgment are all for his glory. The Bible offers various attributes that will be set forth in display to be marveled at. For example, in Exodus, God acts so that others will recognize his utter uniqueness and power. Why do we have the story in Exodus? Why does God take the actions that he does to reveal his uniqueness and power? In Romans, God's saving action is to display his righteousness, justice, wrath, power, mercy, and riches of his glory. In Ephesians, God acts for the ultimate display of at least three attributes, grace, kindness, and wisdom. Paul said something interesting about the people of God. He said, you are living epistles known and read by men. All right, so my question, if that's what God was revealing in Exodus and in Ephesians and in Romans, what's God revealing in the story of Keith? The story of Carmen. The story of Steve. What is God putting on display? What of his glory is he posturing you to see so that your life would proclaim? Because that's why we exist, to proclaim the glory of God, to see the glory of God, and then to proclaim the glory of God. Now, before we close, I just want to devotionally walk us through some thoughts from Isaiah chapter 43. So if you turn there, this will be our last thought. Remember, you are what you are, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people special and belonging to God in order to proclaim the excellencies of him. It's not a Bible verse for the first century. It's, it's for all who belong to him. And so that's who we are. Now listen, listen with me to Isaiah 43. Verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. This is the echoes of what Peter picks up when he says, You are chosen race a people who belong to God, a people for God's own possession. You are mine. This is the language Peter's using. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God. 
the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba, in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory whom I formed and made. You who are uniquely mine. Notice Egypt and Cush and Saba are not uniquely God's. You see that? God says, I give these lives in exchange for yours. I do not have you in the same category with others. You are a precious possession to me. You are my chosen ones. All right, common sense question. This is common sense reading of the Bible. Okay, well, God, help me here because I'm precious to you and I'm chosen by you. Why are you having to tell me about not being fearful because I'm going to have waters that look like they're going to overwhelm me and fire that you're having to tell me is not going to consume me and that you're going to gather me from the scattered places all over the place. If I'm precious to you, and I'm your chosen special people, why would I ever be in such conditions to be afraid? Why? Well, here's why. Verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right and let them hear and say, it is true, you are my witnesses. You are my proclaimers, declares the Lord and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses declares the Lord, and I am God. God, why? Why Why would you set us among the nations with this sense of being overwhelmed by floods and fire? God, why would you do that? So that you would know me as the only Savior, and you would proclaim me as the only Savior. That's why. You keep reading in this chapter, verse 14. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Lord, why these circumstances? Why? so that you would know me as your redeemer and you would proclaim me as the redeemer to the nations. That's why. Verse 16. Thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like the wicked. Remember not the former things nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it spreads forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, do, do, you, do you see this dynamic that goes hand in hand? There's a revelation of God, but there's this backdrop for all the revelation. 
And the backdrop is deserts and rivers and enemies and situations. God, why, why do you put us in those kind of positions? You said we were precious to you. You said we belong to you. Deserts are places of fear and lack. Overwhelmed by rivers are places of catastrophe. Armies are places of destruction. God, why do you put us in those places? So that I can make a way in the wilderness for you. So that I can be in that moment what only I could be in that moment. And you will look to me as the God who providentially rules over your life. You understand, if you never see the providence of God, how do you proclaim the providence of God? Never see a sovereign God reigning over our lives in circumstances that make us wonder whether he's sovereign. How do you ever proclaim the glory of a sovereign God? Look in verse 20. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people. The people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. Listen, that's a that's a statement of ultimate destiny. And when you and I try to figure out why our career advances or doesn't advance. Why our health does this or does that. Why relationships go this way or that way. Why our emotions are this or that. You know, when we're trying to figure out those components, there is an ultimate destiny that's over our lives. That you and I exist in this loving, wise plan of God for the purpose of declaring the glory of God from our lives. That's going to feel like a desert sometimes. It's going to feel like a need for providential intervention sometimes. It's going to feel like fear sometimes before you taste and see the goodness of God and live to declare the glory of God. Matt, when you go ahead and come. I mean, does your mind... Does your mind go to this place? God just used big words to describe how he feels about us. Chosen and precious. And allowed to suffer? If you go back and you read in 1 Peter chapter 2, as you come to him... You remember the rest of the verse? We read it enough times for you to remember? A living stone, chosen and precious. The Son of God was chosen and precious. This is a declaration that we too are chosen and precious. Now, what was the path upon which the Son of God walked in this world? Well, he humbled himself to come live as a man in the desert of humanity amidst the floods and torrents and armies of this world to yield his life to a cross so that he might take upon himself the punishment for our sin and our guilt so that his blood might forgive us and that we might be restored to him. See, Jesus, the chosen and precious one, lived a life for the glory of God. And then God comes along and says, I am dealing with you as sons. I am treating you as a son with a purpose. The purpose that's higher than any other purpose you could ever have in your life. To declare the glory of God, to live to see the glory of God and then to express the glory of God. That, that purpose cannot be the purpose that we resist while we try to find our destiny. No, no, 
That is our destiny. Tasting and seeing the glory of God and proclaiming that glory in our lives. Until the day one day when God takes us to be with him and, you know, the ultimate climax of that story is we are face to face with him. I'm aware as I look and you read through Isaiah 43, God is injecting good news into what doesn't sound like good news. Does Isaiah 43, does that sound really comforting to you? But into that comes the reality of who God is. And the only thing, listen to me, the only thing that makes Isaiah 43 good news is if you really do see who God is in the midst of Isaiah 43. If you fail to see the glory of God, then you haven't heard any good news today. Because to see the glory of God, you would want it at all cost. You'd want it more than anything else. You would, you would be able to sit in the garden with the mounting weight of all the wrath of God accumulating at the cross and pray, Lord, if it, poss- if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but your will be done. Because the son longed to see the glory of God more than he longed for anything else. More than he longed for his own comfort. More than he longed for what seemed to make sense in light of his own personal life. He longed for the glory of God. And there was never a more difficult moment, I believe, in human history than that moment in the garden. And you and I are staring into our own Gethsemane. It's not nearly in the same realm, but but it feels huge and ominous. You know how tempting it is to to just sort of want to get out the hedge trimmers and start changing the shape of the garden? Make all of our prayers about, God, you need to fix this. You need to change this. This has got to go away, Lord. Does that prayer get prayed sometimes because I've, I've lost sight of proclaiming his glory? Lord, in this moment, Lord, do I, do, do, I want, do I want the suntan more than I want what causes you to be big and glorious? Am I, am I loving the effect of knowing you or am I loving knowing you and making you known so that even in the most dire difficulty, my passion in that moment is, Lord, not the easy, comfortable way, but the way that brings glory to you. That's a hard prayer to pray, isn't it? What makes it hard is when I haven't seen God's glory. If I'm blind to his glory like the enemy wants to make me, it's very hard to pray that prayer. So here's how I'd like to close our time today. Let me just give some room for God. I asked Matt just to lead us in a song or two. That if you're here today in, in Isaiah 43, that overwhelming sense, that fearful sense, those circumstances are filled with questions. I don't want you to spend all your time praying about your circumstances. I, I want you to pray about whether your heart desires more than anything else to see the glory of God. Lord, I want to see your glory. And I want my life to proclaim your glory. I don't think you'll pray the second part unless you've seen the first. You have to taste and see that God is good. Listen, if you're a Christian who's not hanging around tasting and seeing, this, this doesn't sound like good news at all. It gets good when you see God and you love Him and you love His ways more than you love life itself. Let's stand up together. Lord, many, many different stories here this morning. Many, Lord, feeling like the encroachment of waters that will overwhelm or fire that's going to consume us. 
or enemies that are closing in or seclusion in a desert. Yet, Lord, in all these moments, you have created an opportunity for our lives to see your glory, to see you come through. And, Lord, you are appealing to us. Lord, I hear a precious appeal. You use language like that. Your encouragement that finds us in our discouragement and says, don't give up because you're mine and you are precious to me and I love you. Lord, there are some here this morning who who need to see your love for them, the glory of your love, the glory of how you've given Egypt and Cush and Saba in exchange for them that they might be yours, precious to you. That they might taste and see that you are good and be able to pray from their garden, Lord, this looks hard. And if it weren't for your glory being seen, Lord, I could easily pray, can you just get rid of it, God? Just make it go away. But Lord, not my will. But yours be done. For I could want nothing greater than for your glory to be seen through my life. providential circumstances that you have allowed for me. For this is why I am, that I might declare the excellencies 